My name is Heidi and I love stories. Funny stories and sad stories and what on earth just happened stories. As it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school, plus a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready, this is Messy Scripture. Israel is riding high after their victory over Jericho, which absolutely was totally God's work entirely, and Israel just kind of showed up. But they still feel real special about it, and that means that they're about to do something really dumb. One Israelite, a member of the tribe of Judah, took some of the stuff that was supposed to be devoted to God and hid it under his tent. Basically, he grabbed some treasure and buried it under the ground and thought that he could get away with it. The next city on Israel's hit list was a city called Ai, which wasn't really a city so much as a small town, and it didn't have any fortifications. So after defeating Jericho, again, a very fortified, absolutely not penetrable city that was now not only uh, penetrated, but one might say sacked and uh, cursed, they thought that Ai would be pretty easy. So Israel sends out a small force and immediately gets their butts handed to them. I mean, they got absolutely routed. However, out of the 3,000 men who were sent, only 36 of them were killed, so it really wasn't, like, a stunning defeat, but it was absolutely a lost battle, and the people of Israel immediately melted, and Joshua tore his clothes and fell down and was like, God, why? Why have you taken your hand of blessing away from us? And God was like, think about it. There may have been someone who broke faith. So they begin to cast lots, and long story short, the find the person who did it. His name is Achan. Again, he's a member of the tribe of Judah, and he had stolen treasure that belonged to God and actually kept it. God is not necessarily in favor of genocide. In fact, I would say God is not in favor of genocide. Pretty objectively, which makes the conquest of Canaan one of the parts that is just complicated to understand. What we do know, however, is that God is not a fan of people doing stuff that he said not to do. Israel's going to have other towns and cities that they're going to conquer, and therefore other opportunities for looting and for taking treasures. Again, keeping in mind that to the Canaanites, this was a God-on-God war as well as a man-on-man war. It's not the kind of thing where Israel was this big, strong military force that was coming in and taking all these innocent people. It was a very small, somewhat ragtag army that was somehow conquering all of these very well-trained armies because apparently Israel's God was doing a much better job of being a god than their gods were. God's not going to put up with any crap, and so as soon as Joshua and the leaders start to cast lots, it becomes very clear that Achan is the one who is guilty, and he confesses immediately to what he has done. They find the silver hidden in his tent, and after praying about it, find that God's orders are pretty clear. They have to stone him to death. For my stoner friends out there, that's not the same thing as having him get so high he dies. That's throwing rocks at him until he's dead. You know, stoning. He and his family and all of his living property, like oxen, are stoned to death, and all of his stuff is burned with fire, and the entire pile, the bodies and the burnt stuff, is covered with stones in the Valley of Achor to make it clear that Israel has not forgotten this particular mistake. Now that the sin of Achan is dealt with, they might actually be able to have a chance against Ai, So Israel mounts up again. God encourages Joshua, literally says, Be courageous, you got this. And this is the plan. They're going to attack Ai much the way they did before, but this time they're going to have a secret second army hidden behind the city. And once the men of Ai begin to chase the Israelites into the desert, you know, like they did last time, the backup army is going to come in and sack the city. It's pretty straightforward. Basically, Ai should have been an easy target, but because they'd been defeated before, Joshua decides to take advantage of that in his strategy. It works. For those of you who aren't super into military history, don't worry, we're almost to the end of it. The army of Ai begins to chase Israel into the desert, and then they turn around and boom, their city is on fire. And they say, wait for it, 
<laughs> All 12,000 inhabitants of Ai were killed that day. But Israel was allowed to loot, and so they took the property, the cattle and the oxen and the sheep and such, and also all of the gold and silver and valuables out of the town. Ai has been conquered, and now the word is spreading even faster throughout Canaan. Joshua's not taking any chances, and he reads the entire law of Moses before the entire people of Israel and renews the covenant that Moses made to God way back when, just to make sure that Israel doesn't have another Jericho to Ai incident. Then they immediately have another incident. Five armies are amassing in the hill country beyond the Jordan. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But the Gibeonites are not having it. They do not want to fight Israel. So they come up with a clever, sneaky little plan. They go to Israel dressed in old raggedy clothes and with old moldy bread, and they tell Israel that they have traveled a long way because they've heard of all the exploits that God has done for them, and they want Israel to promise that they won't attack them. The Gibeonites basically make it out like they are from a distant country, when in fact they are very close neighbors and definitely, definitely, definitely on the hit list. Joshua and the elders, having not prayed about it, end up making a covenant with the Gibeonites that they will not attack them and that they are basically under Israel's protection that they're no longer in danger. However, three days after the covenant is made, it becomes clear that the Gibeonites are close neighbors. They are not from any sort of distant place. And Israel starts to grumble against the leadership. They're like, why did we promise not to kill them? And Israel's like, well, we can't attack them now because we made an oath on the name of God. We don't have any choice. We have to follow through with it. We don't have anything we can do about it. Joshua does offer them a curse, though, you know, because they tricked him, that now they would be woodcutters and water carriers and do all of the hard jobs for Israel forever. Gibeon accepts these terms because, quite frankly, uh, they'd be real screwed if Joshua changed his mind beyond that. So they accept it. And for most of Israel's history, Gibeon is sort of a subnation living inside Israel. They don't cause any particular trouble compared to Israel itself, and they are woodcutters and water carriers for the duration of the story. The five kings that had gathered up to fight Joshua find out that Gibeon has made a treaty with Israel, and they decide that instead of attacking Israel directly, they'll attack Gibeon, in part because they don't want Israel to have an ally, and in part because they might be able to draw Joshua out. The plan works. The men of Gibeon tell Joshua that they are being attacked by these five kings, and Joshua, of course, mounts up his army, and they go to defend Gibeon. They march all night and attack the kings suddenly at dawn in Gilgal, and the battle is fearsome. The five kings begin to flee, their entire armies, before the army of Israel, and as they flee down into a valley, God throws hailstones down from heaven. In fact, more people died that day from the hailstones than from Israel's army. Joshua wants to strike while the iron is hot, and there's literally not enough time in the day for all the butt king stomping that he needs to get done. So he prays and asks God to keep the sun in the sky. And believe it or not, God does. The sun stands still in the sky. For my physics friends who are like, how did that work? I don't frickin' know. That's not my job. I'm a storyteller. I'm not a scientist. I'm a storyteller, Jim, not a doctor. I have no idea. But the sun stands still and it's recorded as like, can you believe? Like, God listened to a human asking for something absolutely ridiculous and grants it. The five kings escape, but their army doesn't. It's completely decimated, and the five kings are actually found in a cave very shortly thereafter. They're hung from trees, and Joshua is now absolutely feared throughout the land of Canaan. Pretty much, the conquest 
as far as a mental game, is over. The conquest, as far as a actually defeating all of the cities, is not. But the rest of it, in the book of Joshua at least, is pretty bluntly recorded, so it's not really a story. Suffice it to say that Joshua continues his conquest, but doesn't actually conquer the entire land of Canaan, mainly because God doesn't want him to right away. See, Israel has a relatively small population for the land that they're supposed to end up in, for the entire promised land, and so they have to kind of take it in chunks. This first massive chunk is going to give all 12 tribes their own special area, their own ancestral inheritance, as it's later called. Um, Although at this point, it's not an ancestral inheritance yet. But the land is divided into the 12 parts that it needs to be divided in. Well, 13 parts, if you consider the half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim as two separate tribes. And also remember that Reuben and Gad already have their inheritance back in Gilead. But the land's divided up and given to its respective tribes. Caleb, the other spy who didn't screw everything up back when Joshua was still a spy under Moses, is given a special inheritance. Caleb, at 85 years old, is just as strong as he was on the day that Moses sent him out to spy the land of Canaan. And so he wants to live in the roughest country of Israel. He wants the hill countries where there there be giants, the sons of Anak. And he wants to, maybe, if God blesses him, drive them out. So Joshua blesses him and lets him do that. Caleb is still ass-kicking, just like Joshua. It's been 45 years since the first time they went into Canaan as young whippersnapper spies, you know, at the bright-eyed and bushy-tailed age of 40. And now they are still absolutely butt-stomping. The rest of the book goes over the divisions of the land for the 12 tribes and yet another covenant renewal. This time at Shechem. And Joshua charges the people of Israel, now that they've completed their conquest, we skipped a lot of... And then they conquered this city, and then they conquered that city, because that's basically all it says. Anyway, Joshua reminds Israel that they need to choose who they will serve. The Canaanites had gods too, and those gods didn't seem to do that well for them. But they also have lots of appealing practices that Israel might want to do. They might want to be like everyone else, even if that means being less than what they already are. If you've ever been into a Christian's or even sometimes a Jewish house, you've probably seen this verse somewhere. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The complete verse reads that Joshua tells Israel to choose who they'll serve. But as for him and his family, they're serving God. It's worked out so far and it's not going to stop working out. And Joshua leads Israel for the rest of his life. And when he dies at the ripe old age of 110 years old, he's buried in his own inheritance. Israel serves God for as long as Joshua lived and through the entire lifetime of all of the elders who also served under Joshua. Two last bits of very, very important business are handled at the end of the book of Joshua. First off, Joseph. Remember the favorite back from season one, the favorite son of Jacob who saved all of Israel from death by famine and also was the reason they came down to Egypt? Remember how he asked to be buried in the land of the inheritance? Well, When the conquest of Canaan is over, Joseph's bones are finally laid to rest, finally, in the land of Canaan. They bury him in Shechem, in the land that his father Jacob had bought from Hamor all those years ago. The other thing is that Eliezer, the son of Aaron, who took over as high priest for his father Aaron when Aaron died, also dies, and he too is buried in the land of his inheritance. Kind of, because he's a Levite, so he doesn't technically have any inheritance. He's buried at Gibeah in the hill country of Ephraim. That's how Levites go, wherever they can. That's the book of Joshua, a fairly successful conquest of a fairly substantial part of land. And we're about to get into the book of Judges, which, fun fact, is where I came up with the name for the podcast. 
See, judges get very, very messy. Buckle up. The ride's about to get absolutely wild. 